Welcome to Hanging On For Hope. I am your host, Andrea Page. Hanging On For Hope is the stories about people working to overcome trauma and adversity, from incarceration to kids in crisis, postpartum depression, acute grief and loss, and serious health challenges. We hear from everyday people on what they're going through and how they get through it. We also hear from experts on the latest strategies, supports, treatment, and brain science for overcoming adverse life experiences and improving quality of life. The human experience is influenced by so many things. Together, we can learn how to overcome the more difficult aspects of life while seeking personal, social, and political justice. Today's guest is the amazing Cheyenne Retnam, a young woman whose biography is so long and impressive, we're going to have a lot to talk about. What I will tell you is this fierce woman spent extensive time in the foster care system and is now a university graduate whose expertise is sought after. Through her lived experience, she has become a relentless child advocate who helps vulnerable, marginalized children while taking on systemic challenges that badly need addressing. Welcome, Cheyenne, to the show. Hi, Andrea. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's such a pleasure. Wow, you are. You're so impressive and inspiring. Um, so I would love for you to tell my listeners just, you know, a little bit about your story and how you ended up in foster care and, you know, um, take us through how, you know, what were the, the first kind of things or people or events that, you know, led you to overcoming your, your very challenging life circumstances? Yeah, I think um, first and foremost, um, there needs to be an understanding that people don't necessarily come into care because life is easy. Um, and so my childhood was strife with um, a lot of adversities and uh, marginalization and a lot of pain. Uh, when I was eight years old, I was um, the survivor of uh, childhood sexual abuse, and it wasn't necessarily responded to proactively, um, empathetically, or in a healing manner. And so that kind of created uh, the environment that led to the tumbling of all the dominoes along the way as the years progressed. And uh, in addition to that, um, I come from an ethnic background, uh, a refugee background, and so I'm growing up in the system, um, or in Canada, I should say, um, as a person who's growing up in this culture, uh, whereas my parents uh, or my mom is not. And so there was a lot of discrepancies, cultural discrepancies within the home. And so there was a lot of uh, violence in the home as well. Um, all, all of this precipitated to the point where I ended up um, running away a lot, um, and it wasn't necessarily running away. Running away is a label that people utilize, but in reality, I was escaping a toxic uh, household or reality um, in order to find safety. And in doing so, I ended up on the youth homelessness spectrum. And thereafter, I was uh, raised by my best friend and her community, the Guyanese community, and then I ended up um, entering the youth criminal justice system because of domestic issues and then from there I entered the child welfare system and just to um, clarify the system uh, generally essentializes foster care as um, the systemic name that is utilized however there's diversity within the system and I actually didn't grow up in the foster care system I grew up in the group care system um, and I think the word care is also something that needs to be kind of deconstructed because um, a lot of people who have gone through the system would not necessarily label, label it as care um, right. so I would just say the the group system in general 
Oh, and thank you for clarifying. And I think, I feel like when we're navigating uh, parts of the system that deal with vulnerable people, and I, I found this in my own experience in advocating for my son, there are so many misconceptions around language. And, you know, I feel like I'm somebody who has been around the block and there you are kind of, you know, teaching me that, that my language needs to be more specific. And, and, and it's really important in relaying to the everyday person who is a taxpayer who's paying into this system so that we can improve these systems. And you're right. A lot of the times, young people who have had to go through whatever aspect of the system, care has not been their experience, their lived experience at all. Right. And so it's, it's just very important to uh, be detailed, right, in terms of what we are talking about, yeah. um, but also the fact that um, part of people's healing and part of um, trauma-informed engagement for anybody um, is to really, uh, you know, shine light on um, systems and experiences that are often subjugated. Um, and in this case, uh, group home experience is usually silenced and foster care and adoption experiences are talked more widely right uh, yeah no that I, I can see that and, and what do you think the, the differences are or, you know what what kind of light can you shine on the group care experience uh, you know and how can you help the average everyday person understand the difference can you, or do you think that you could do that for us yeah, I mean, a, a very brief uh, explanation I could pr definitely provide. Um, foster care is, generally speaking, uh, predominantly, um, you know, care placements where a young person is entered into a family-like environment. And some of these environments do have extra care. Um, so they might have a child and youth worker who supports the foster parent or foster parents. Um, and so there, there might be some sort of structure in that as well. Whereas group system is definitely a lot more rigid. And, um, you know, back in the days, uh, group care, or I should say group systems, um, a lot of the young people who entered the group system were people who were engaged in the youth criminal justice system, uh, which is what is what, what's currently called right now. Um, however, uh, the group care, the group uh, home system is also the system where young people who may require more uh I guess, um, structure are placed as well. In my situation, um, I don't think the intake process was done properly because if they had done that properly, then they would have realized that um, many of the current situations were because of childhood trauma. And so foster care um, or foster system would have been the more optimal placement for me. However, I definitely still thrived because of the values that were instilled in me um, through my biological parents, regardless of whether that was a positive relationship or not. Interesting. And, and you know, I would say, like, uh, I always say you're hard pressed, you know, I, I would, sorry, I, it's just a thing that I stumble on because it's a stumbling block for me emotionally, personally, as well as politically. I don't believe that there's anyone in the system that is not coming from childhood trauma. And I think that's where the, the biggest problem within the system, and you know, I have a friend who's a judge and I have, you know, friends I know obviously because of the advocacy I do in my own child. I know people who are incarcerated. I know families who are advocating for their children. Um, and, you know, on a variety of different levels um, who don't, there's the trauma help is not there. <laughs> and it doesn't matter where you go. It's not there. 
right? I, I'm finding systemically it's not available. I mean, even privately, it's difficult to come by. And so it really is the missing link, right? When you've got children who are going into any form of care or even getting funneled into the criminal justice system, you know, you know, like my girlfriend who's a judge said, you know, I can see a child that needs help and their behavior has been criminalized and there's obviously guidelines that I need to follow. And, but yet the help doesn't really exist. I mean, it's in, it's so like, there's such little slivers of help. Um, and, and this is, I think for me where I, which is why I do this podcast is that I feel like the community and all of us, we need to start empowering ourselves within our own families and with our own communities to have the knowledge to hold space for trauma in a meaningful way. Yeah, and I think trauma is very important to deconstruct and really critically understand because uh, the system itself intervenes at the point where the young person is quote unquote in jeopardy or in trouble or is experiencing instability. However, there's different types of trauma, right? And so there's, um, you know, being traumatized by an incident, but then there's also chronic trauma, complex trauma, transgenerational and intergenerational trauma, development trauma, et cetera. And so part of this is also communal trauma um, and also the fact that it's not just the child experiencing trauma sometimes. And actually, a lot of the times, it's also unresolved trauma of parents and their parents and parents' parents. And so it's all, it, for me, it's about communal and collective healing just as much as it is about individual healing. However, it can happen concurrently in a parallel process or separately, but we need to definitely broaden our lenses on trauma and the way that we intervene and support families, young people, and the community. Yeah, and that, and you're exactly right, because that's exactly, you know, I was talking to a young woman the other day who is the partner of an incarcerated um man and they have a child and she's seeing the and she's indigenous and so she's very bright in terms of she's a very very bright woman and so she's in the middle of constructing deconstructing you know her trauma and it is it is interesting and I feel like I've gone through that personally as well because I recognize that I passed on a lot of my unresolved trauma to my child right and you know society has to get out of that kind of uh, either or thinking we have to recognize that, you know, as I always say to parents who are in crisis who want to help their children, okay, what are you doing to help yourself? Because you have, it's not, it's not about blame or shame. It's about information. It's about collecting information and saying, okay, in some way I have probably been traumatized too. And this has affected my ability to parent. I've been parenting from a place of being triggered and not even recognizing it, not having the tools, not having the language, not having the self-awareness, right? So you are so bang on about that part because it is really about, I go back to the thing that you said just a little while back about your own childhood sexual abuse. And it's a piece that I, you know, that I constantly respond to people when they're like, well, I was traumatized and I turned out fine, which I mean, that statement in of itself contextually is debatable. But the big piece is that we need to learn how to hold space for one another's trauma to allow that processing to happen, right? And holding space at the time of a trauma, right? So you identified that as a survivor that no, you didn't have anybody who had those tools in your life, right? So- and there you yeah. are. Yeah. 
and it's it's so important that um, to understand that everybody's healing process is so so different, right? And yeah. even throughout my healing process, not only did I have to really internally go on an introspective journey um, for my own healing to occur, I had to also understand and come to a place for me to understand, and not everybody is ready to do that, but come to a place for me to understand other people's traumas and the way that they impacted me. It does it, does it justify their behavior? No. But does it um, add to my healing journey? Yes, it does. But everyone's healing journey is very different. And, you know, for, for example, even my own biological mother, um, she comes from a history of genocide um, of our ethnic community. And there's forced separation, forced migration, and a lot of oppression because of the ethnic minority group that we belong to. And so she comes from all of that history, plus her own relational trauma that she's experienced plus her trauma because of me and the way that I, um, you know, uh, reacted or responded to the lack of love and nurturing that was in the home. Um, but that, but that's what it is, right? Life is very complex. And as we grow older, um, we need the support and the right environments to be able to uh, journey through all of these um, experiences and nuances to better understand ourselves, but also the people in our lives. And I love what you just said, you know, just because there, there is the accountability piece. So we do have to learn how to be accountable, accountable for our own behavior and our own actions and, and the harm that we've brought to others. Right. And this is something when I do advocacy for the criminal, for, you know, for corrections advocacy, a lot of the feedback, like the public feedback is, you know, you do the crime, you do the time. Uh-huh. Sure. Nobody's discount, discounting that, but the challenge, and we all see this and I'm using this example because I feel like it's kind of the, the big one, the big objective the big objection is, well, we, when somebody is acting out and their, uh, and their behavior is becoming a symptom of their trauma, uh, we are forgetting that punishing them alone is not going to heal them from their trauma. That the, there does need to be consequences for actions, but in those consequences, then how are we helping people deal with trauma? Which I think, I'm sure you hear it a lot. The big question is, is we're all, you, me, we're sitting here, we're talking about trauma, we're talking about what it means. But a lot of people, like what the average everyday person wants to know is, okay, so what do I do? There, if I'm sitting on a three-year waiting list or, you know, so what do I do? So I'm curious, like, are you comfortable sharing like some of the things that you've done to recover from your trauma? Yeah, I mean, the thing is, like, my journey has been very interesting. And so, you know, from a from a very young age, I disconnected myself from my ethnic community because of the trauma that I experienced. Um, and so part of my healing started the day that I found myself in a holding cell, because that was the first time I felt very safe and I didn't have to worry about whose house I was going to be sleeping at in terms of one of my friends and all that stuff. And so that healing process, healing is very interesting because there's different types of healing, different ways of healing and different nuances of healing. And so for me, that moment when I finally felt safe was a moment of healing for me even though my life was still chronically chaotic. And so I still found that moment of peace. Um, but then also, you know, as I grew older, when I, when I stepped into the child welfare system and I stepped into the group home system, that gave me um, distance from my family, my community, and my ethnic community. And so 
that actually provided me um, with safety in terms of slowly when I wanted to finally start doing it to slowly dabble into my ethnicity into my parents spirituality religion etc and so my healing happened at a distance sometimes you know relationships get stronger with distance and right. sometimes you know I, I always remind this to young people and parents and whoever is that sometimes healing means not talking to somebody who means a lot to you because there's still um, you know a form of toxicity in your life and maybe that relationship can be repaired later on but at that moment for that person's healing process a disconnect is needed and so healing is not just about um, reunification and about togetherness healing sometimes actually and it's very hard for a lot of people to hear this and it's hurtful but sometimes healing also requires disconnection and distance as well and I love what you said because again it's not black or white it doesn't need to be forever and I think you know I, it's a perfect example with my my oldest son and I we have definitely had to go through periods of complete distance because our traumas were feeding into one another and it doesn't matter that I was the adult because once you're in it and you've arrived at a place like you said where it's at a critical point sometimes people need to retreat but you know you know years later we are healing our relationship I did a lot of work on myself uh, he has done some work on himself. He's much, much younger and he's got a lot of time ahead of him. But it, it, that's that piece, right? That we sometimes we, we hang on a little too tightly and, you know, that abusive dynamic will stay. And, and if you can just take a break, you, you might be able to come back stronger to the relationship and healthier and really have a chance to heal it. So, yes, I agree space is a huge um, factor for, for many people to heal. Yeah. And also, I, you know, like one of the thing is that, um, for me, I, I talk about healing justice and like we talk about transformative, um, healing as well. And when I say healing justice, it means the helpers or the supportive, um, players in a situation, whether they are the system players or whoever it is, like a third party person coming in to do conflict resolution or to provide support to the family or the young person, um, healing justice is also, you know, coming from an anti-oppression, um, lens that is also looking at equity, inclusion, diversity, right. And making sure that people are trauma informed and that they the, the helper themselves who are stepping into this role are not bringing their own baggage and reacting, being triggered by the person they're trying to support. And it's so important to make sure that all types of relationships are therapeutic and it's okay to make mistakes. <laughs> We're not all perfect. Sometimes we forget, but then it's always important to apologize and name when you have gone wrong to repair that therapeutic relationship and to continue as well. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And I, I'm so, first of all, you are speaking my language. I think you are one of the most emotionally intelligent people that I have ever met in my life. Uh, you have a comprehension of the issues at hand that I don't, I've never come across in with many, with most people that I've spoke to. You really, you can really see that you've lived it, but you can also really see how much you've learned and you mentioned something that's really close to my heart whether and it's whether it's the schools or corrections you know I've, I've been saying forever that all teachers all administrators especially teachers because they're the people who are dealing with young children 
And they are the people who along, yes, with parents if they can, but if somebody's in crisis or traumatized themselves, you don't know what you don't know. So frontline carers, people, adult relationships, they need to be therapeutic. And the teacher, the principal, all of these things. And so too often do I see what, what is very obvious to me, administrators who are not trauma-informed uh, and, uh, and do not have a sense of self-awareness stepping into abusing their positions of power and perpetuating complex trauma for young people who really just need help, right? And, um, you know, so I'm curious to know, like, are you involved in any initiatives that are working towards getting corrections or the schools or, you know, um, children's aid more trauma informed? Like what's happening in the work, in the work that you're doing? I mean, I'm, I, so in, in my professional life, um, I have a, an independent consulting business. So I offer advice, I do trainings, I do workshops, uh, I do one-to-one -one support, et cetera. And so I was recently um, acquired by an Ontario um, institution who is doing research and providing recommendations to the province on the Ontario bail system. And so I have the opportunity uh, to get involved in cool projects like this where we're actually engaging with young people and making sure that young people are voicing what is concerning to them but also recommendations from their lens. Uh, the other thing is is um, I, I am a director on the board of a child welfare agency and we've been doing a lot of work in terms of you know making sure that our strategic plan is in line with uh, with all these values as well and I'm very proud of the agency that I'm affiliated with um, in terms of overseeing the functioning of it and, and supporting the CEO the other thing is that um, I am the lead uh, and a founding member of the Ontario Children's Advocacy Coalition and as part of this um, you know I've had the opportunity to advocate uh, for young people but also families and currently I've had the opportunity to support uh, a mother in the province of Ontario um, who's had uh, who had experienced a lot of trauma um, in regards to a school board in the province of Ontario. And so um, in the past couple of months, we've been sitting down with the superintendents of this board and we've been having a lot of crucial conversations and you know we we came at a really crucial point uh, where we actually uh, had talked about even documentation right and the documentation process um, that administrators take on when they're engaging with young people when they do um, end up at the office or they're in trouble or you know they're they're being um, counseled like what does that process even look like and I had mentioned um, some advice and they the superintendent looked at me and they're just like whoa like this is like I, we are definitely going to look into this because sometimes it's about thinking outside the box and making sure that we're doing critical work, not just work, but critical social work is what I like to say, um, and making sure that even documentation is trauma-informed, that documentation is anti-oppressive, that documentation itself is has an equity, inclusion, diversity lens. And it goes beyond, you know, um, being transparent about what it is that you are writing down as the person who has authority in a relationship, it, it goes well beyond that. So how do we reconceptualize um, the documentation that happens within these institutions and sectors and make sure that we're moving this paradigm from you know, individualizing issues to um, making sure that we're actually coming at everything from a therapeutic and trauma-informed lens? Wow. 
the work you are doing is so crucial to interrupting uh, the pattern of the school to prison pipeline and everything that you are saying uh, we need like a hundred more people like you doing this work. And, you know, I also do advocacy and go into the schools and help parents speak with superintendents and, and, you know, I'm constantly, I live in, I'm not in the Toronto board and, you know, so I constantly refer to people like you yourself to try to challenge my existing board that I live in. Um, that is a, you know, a predominantly white community that is even more so underserving marginalized um, youth because they are the kids who are getting suspended and they are the kids who are having their traumas dismissed and and that you have all of these administrators who are not trauma-informed and you're absolutely right the, it, it's it's in the record keeping it's in the language it's in the the responses from these administrators and you see these poor kids in crisis who are getting thrust into further crisis uh, right and, yeah and it's so it's 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 painful and frustrating to watch but you know the work that you are doing is hopefully quicker sooner rather than later uh helping get people up to speed um i had another question and i lost it but um has any of the work so what is your you know because one of the things again i just mentioned it about suspensions right you know i find we all know that uh, marginalized children are more likely to be suspended than their white counterparts um have you done any specific work around dealing with frontline educators because obviously behavior is a symptom of other issues have you been able to be successful i know some other advocates that have been but have you been able to be successful with any of your work with frontline educators around reducing suspensions and helping get trauma-informed relationships and care in place for these kids? Yeah, I mean, it's, it, I, I was um, placed in a developmental high school in Ontario uh, a couple of years ago. Um, and actually, this was actually while I was still a student. Um, and while I was still a student, I was, um, supporting the uh, instructors and teachers and staff um, in terms of figuring out how do we uh, you know uphold and respect the dignity of young people who have been labeled with various disabilities um, and the fact that this is an accessible school um, I don't like using the the term special needs um, I think we should move from special needs to accessible needs um, and so it, this was an accessible school and so how are we um, engaging with young people with differential needs and then when somebody who may not have the same type of IQ or capacity to understand something um, does something wrong how are we still or why are we still suspending that person when we know that they don't have the capacity to understand what what is restorative practice right um, and so part of my advocacy at that time was you know at that time the the board um, practiced zero tolerance um, they don't practice that anymore that's very good and very glad. But at that time, that's what the policy was. So if something happened, you're immediately suspended or expelled. And that was an issue because disproportionately, it's not just racialized bodies, it's predominantly black bodies in um, Southern Ontario specifically, whereas in Northern Ontario, obviously, there's probably more um, bias against indigenous First Nations Métis individuals. But in Southern Ontario, there's a disproportionate bias and disproportionate suspension rate among black bodies. Um, and so how do we support our black 
young people. Um, and yes, there are other young people of different races that are, um, you know, targeted, but in terms of um, profiling and in terms of systemic oppression, black bodies and black families are often the people who are experiencing um, increased surveillance, increased, um, you know, consequencing, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So at that time I did have some success and we did um, provide um, another way of doing things. But in terms of in the current process, like I haven't done much work in terms of suspension work. However, um, part of the discussions and resources that we share on OCAC, but also my one-to-one -one conversations, et cetera, when people hire me as a consultant is talking about um, equity issues, is talking about anti-oppression, is talking about anti-Black racism. It is talking about trauma-informed engagement and practice because they're both two different things, um, but also how to um, connect them with Black people who are in the community doing leadership work. Um, oftentimes, um, even for myself as a non-Black person, um, I, I need to be careful in terms of where I set my foot in when other people are doing the work and doing it wonderfully as well. So that's it. So it's also about allyship and respecting people as well. Yeah, and I think that's the piece, right? Allyship is a huge component. And I think it, it's interesting to me because in my community, we're not as mobilized as we need to be. And I have, um, you know, close friends and colleagues who are members of the black community who I'm trying to support to help get initiatives going right now. But, you know, I find that in a lot of these smaller communities, um, the kids are being failed at such a rapid pace that we are seeing a, a, a lot of growing problems, right? Whereas a lot of these families had moved away from Toronto to avoid some of the problems that were happening socially, you know, unfortunately, your problems sometimes just follow you because now you're moving to communities where you can't access any meaningful support. Um, so I, I'm, I'm loving to hear about the work that you're doing. Um, so now tell me, like, what's happening for you now? So you're doing so much. I don't even, I feel like, wow, I want to do like a live Q&A with you. I guess what my last question will be for this moment because I, you are a wealth of knowledge girl um is if you had a family in crisis right now and this is what i always say i'm curious i know what my answer is but if you had because i'm sure you do have this let's say it's my story 10 years ago you've got a young boy in crisis whose behavior is starting to get criminalized you know that he needs emotional help um, but you can't access the help um, so you've got, this is a scenario that's going on all over right now. You've got, you know, a young at-risk family who's maybe, the, it's a single mom, you know, she's, she's missing work trying to support her child, which is putting her family's financial state in an even more vulnerable circumstance. Her child's in crisis, she can't access support, and the school is starting to criminalize the child's behavior. How would you counsel a woman like that? What, what would you... How would you support her? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, number one is um, I want to kind of uh, focus a little bit on language. Um, the system utilizes at risk and vulnerable a lot. Um, I like to utilize systemically failed families uh, because it's a systemic issue and it's not the individual or family's fault for finding themselves in, for example, systemic systemic outcomes, right, of um, systemic issues. So if, if it's poverty, if it's uh, if their children are in gang-related issues, there's usually a systemic root behind all that. So I usually see systemically failed 
young people or families. Um, the other thing is, is that when I, if, if I came across you, um, you know, and your situation and your family and members um, before, uh, I think the first thing that I would have done is is do an asset mapping exercise to see who your allies are, what the assets are, and what the gaps are, and then make sure that we actually come together, not just yourself and myself, and including your sons and other allies that you have and family members. Um, it's to make sure that we have some sort of cushioning. Um, and now the, the buzzword is, you know, conferencing, but it's basically just making sure that we have a wraparound system uh, for yourself, but also for your son, because both of you have different needs, right? And uh, maybe at that time, uh, that may have not been understood. I'm not sure, but both of you have different agendas, different needs, and different root causes for the way that things were unraveling or things were being experienced. So I would have the, um, the, the teacher, I would have um, supports within the school that it, who interact with your son. Um, I would also have your supports if you did have supports around the table. It's about bringing allies and meaningful allies. So there's allyship and there's meaningful allyship. There's people who would say that they're your ally, but really they don't necessarily have um, your best uh, you know, your, your, your best case scenario in mind. It's usually people with, who still have an agenda. And so it's very important to asset map who exactly is for you, but also see what the gaps are and who we can fill in with those, in terms of those gaps. So having people come, in, come around the table and devising some sort of plan to not just address what is going on, but to therapeutically journey through what is going on. I don't like the I don't like the idea of addressing issues. It's about journeying through issues with one another, alongside one another, to make sure that this is a collective process um, and not just at the onus of the mother or or young person to make those changes or to create change, et cetera. So this, I, I would definitely come at it from a more collective response and a more therapeutic response. Wow. I love this. And I, first of all, I want to thank you. Like I've learned so much. You've challenged my language, which I always want my language challenged. I have feel, I feel so empowered by the things that you've shared with me. Uh, you, what you've offered me and my listeners today is really just beyond profound. Uh, you are such a change maker. And I love that you use the term map. I do something different. I call it a massive action plan. Uh, I never uh, had heard the term, well, obviously I've heard the term allyship, but that asset com component is, it is so astute and uh, it just kind of makes me think differently about when I'm doing advocacy, how I can improve myself because sometimes I get so, like, I get really overwhelmed and I'm like, I want to help a family so badly, but I feel all these barriers coming up myself and I'm wondering how I'm going to, like, help this family and give them the, like direct them in the right direction. So allyship and, and um, the words that you're using um, are really, really powerful to help people process how can we kind of like step back and think about a plan for not just the in-crisis child, but yes, the entire family, right? Because when a child is in crisis, the whole family's in crisis, as obviously, no matter what the root cause is, right? Um, I, I, obviously you are an extremely busy woman. Um, and I do plan to share, uh, obviously in the bio of this podcast, it will be if any listeners want to, you know, find out more about Cheyenne, everything that will be there. Like, do you have time to, to work as an advocate or to do kind of consulting for families who are looking for 
ideas to deal with their situation? Do you have time for that type of stuff? Yeah, I think it really depends because um, right now I'm also building my own portfolio, right? And expanding uh, my portfolio as well. And so um, it just really depends, especially with uh, currently right now with OCAC, um, we're going to be incorporated very soon and that kind of takes a lot of time. Um, but also, uh, you know, journeying um, with other uh, committees that I'm on um, because I'm helping with strategic planning. I'm helping them with, um, you know, really think about equity, inclusion, diversity. However, if people want to reach out to me, I can definitely um, support in terms of connecting them with somebody who may have more time, um, but it's always good to have uh, have people in my network or for them to have me in their network just in case. Um, and to, yeah, give a follow um, in terms of Ontario Children's Advocacy Coalition on Facebook. Um, and then they could also follow me on Twitter, which is at C-H-E-Y-R-A-T-N-A-M. Um, and, you know, keep connected. Uh, we're always putting out information in terms of resources and even news articles. It's very important for everybody to be up to date on current events. But in terms of personal um personal issues, et cetera. Um, if people want, want, have questions, um, they can reach out to me. Uh, but I'm also a disenfranchised person myself. And so it's yeah. also about me paying my own bills too, right? That's exactly right. And, and it, so I actually have so many, when we get off this, I'm going to send you some messages because I've got some, some great things, you know, yeah, you, you deserve to be compensated for your time as we all do right so uh, but you are a wealth of knowledge with the ability to empower many people's lives um, and are empowering many people's lives with your lived experience you know it's interesting as we are all now kind of because we are at a little moment in time where you know we're all kind of being you know asked to stay home and you know and I'm thinking about the families who are dealing with crisis right now and wondering how they're going to navigate not having a lot of structure and um you know so i'm trying to find ways to make myself available for support or to put together you know peer support teams of of youth who will talk to another youth that maybe is in crisis right um i, I would love to know if you have any ideas about how in this kind of like challenging moment that we're kind of having in our society right now how with all this instability you know how can we better support one another um, at a really grassroots level? Yeah, I think what's been very beautiful to witness, in my opinion, is how individuals are coming together um, with strangers. Um, I'm, I'm in a group uh, on Facebook, actually, um, and people can check this out. It's, it's, it's probably uh, the Toronto area. Um, however, it's called, uh, I think it was caremongering. <laughs> That's what it is called. Oh, and I have basically, one in Niagara, too. Yes, yeah. so there's there's different chapters popping up now, and it was started by a person in Toronto. And um, when she invited me into the group, I thought this is wonderful because at a time when there's a lot of fear mongering and a lot of um, apprehension in terms of you know um, suspicion in terms of people around us, um, yeah. it's so important to come together. And there's so many different ways that we could take care of one another. Um, you know, an individual's uh, well-being is definitely connected to the communal well-being as well, whether it's people that we know or strangers. And so even, you know, thinking about people who might be experiencing loneliness, give them a call and, you know, offer them your voice. It doesn't have to be that you're going to go and spend money or go across, you know, the problem 
province or do something big. It's also about the micro um, supports and care that you can support people with. And so give people a call, um, join these uh, groups that are popping up that are local to you. And also um, be part of these, there's many different um, documents that are being created right now online. So I know OCAC just shared um, two of them. And basically one of them is uh, a lot of activities that people who are working remotely or people who cannot work uh, because they don't have the privilege of working remotely um, they're basically activities for young people while they're not in school and so how do you keep young people occupied their brains still moving um, and going beyond just you know simple activities and going into sensory activities and mindfulness and well-being activities um, there's also documents popping up on in terms of food sharing um, in terms of figuring out what the gap analysis is in communities and in um, neighborhoods um, and somebody in the Toronto group is actually creating an app um, in terms of having some sort of app that matches people uh, to needs in terms of locality. So if somebody is in one intersection, there's somebody else in another intersection who has Lysol wipes or whatever the person needs, or if they need food, cool. then they can get matched up and um, support each other. So there's a lot of different ways, but um, think about the really small ways that you could help out too. I love that because you know what? I, and I don't want to dismiss any of the people who have been impacted negatively by this. I know it is, it's devastating, but I do think that in a time of crisis like this, there's a huge opportunity for us to learn how to strengthen our relationships on all levels. And so you've just hit it all kind of right in one statement. Cheyenne, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I am so grateful for your knowledge. Uh, I will definitely be reaching out to you again. Um, uh, is there anything that you would like to leave my listeners with? Like again, how they can reach you or just, you know, a word of wisdom, something, a favorite resource. Yeah, I mean, first of all, um, Andrea, thank you so much for having me on your podcast. I really am humbled and appreciated for the opportunity. The one thing that I that I would like to say is, um, you know, amidst chaos, please don't forget the voice of young people um, and the wants of young people, and to make sure that uh, people are understanding young people in a way that makes sense. Um, so for example, if you are interacting with a five-year-old, um, you're not necessarily going to ask a five-year-old whether they need surgery for their broken arm because maybe they won't understand what that means, but you're gonna ask them if they want one flavor of medication versus the other, right? So it's so important to make sure that we're nurturing our young people to build decision-making skills from an early age so that when they're older, they are more independent and able to um, navigate through chaos um, a lot better, but also when they're engaged in chaos in their lives, whether they're alone or with family, it's so important to understand where their internal chaos is coming from and how to um, address their personal and unique needs. It's so important. Oh, absolutely. Cheyenne, thank you so much. This is Andrea Page, and this is Hanging On for Hope.